This message is a product of Vortex Church in Albemarle, North Carolina. We thank you for engaging this conversation. Messages like this one are great resources to help us grow, but they cannot replace being a part of a local church. If you're not actively a part of a church, we encourage you to find one near you that fits you, visit it, and get involved. And we hope this message gives life to you today. Enjoy. need to learn to define love the way that God defines it. And that video is such a great reminder of it. I just want to thank you because many of you have reached out in love towards me and my family in the past week. If you don't know, my grandmother, uh, my mom's mom passed away uh, this past week. And um, it's this is the third grandparent that I've lost. And, and, uh, and so the, this is one of those moments when uh, we sing songs like, uh, your name is life, your name is hope inside me. You know, and then we sing lines like, I believe in the resurrection that we will rise again. And normally on Sundays we sing them and it's truth and it just kind of goes through and and I recognize it. But then there's some days when it just kind of means a little bit more and it weighs a little bit more. And this is one of those where it just weighs a little bit more the belief and that hope that we have in Jesus for the resurrection that we will one day be with him. And so thank you so much for reaching out in love to care for my family and for my mom who has lost her mother. Um, If you are not aware of the arrangements, uh, I will be speaking and leading worship tomorrow at a memorial service for her at 6 p.m. at uh, Edwards Funeral Home and Norwood, North Carolina, if you're interested in coming and being a part of supporting our family, we'd love to have you for that. Uh, visitation will be the following night on Tuesday night, and then uh, she was Catholic, and so she will be buried on Wednesday following a mass and then a graveside ceremony at 11 and then 1.30. And so we'd love to be able to have you tomorrow night as a part of our church family to, to celebrate that. Um, now, as we kind of get into this message today, um, last week we talked about what it meant to reclaim the heart of a woman, right? So this week uh, is my turn for the guys. And can I just tell you before we get started today that this is a personally convicting message. As I prepared for this, this is one of those that like, I just felt the weight of God uh, speaking to me. So today, if you feel that, if you're a, you're a guy in the room and you feel a little convicted throughout the context of this message, I just want you to understand, I'm sitting in the boat with you, all right? I'm not, I'm not preaching at you. I'm just sharing God's Word. And so I think it's important to go back to kind of where this all started, which is the origination of humanity, which comes out of Genesis chapter 1. And in that, we see as God does describes to us the creation of humanity in Genesis 1, 26, 27, these important truths, that God said, let us make man in our own image to be like us, to be like us. And we focused on that in the last series that we, we, we preached called we, I Choose Jesus, where we talked about the fact that God made us into three-part beings. We are body, soul, and spirit, just like God is a three-dimensional God that he has presented himself to us in three distinctly different ways. But he continues on. They will reign over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, and all the wild animals on the earth, and the small animals that scurry along the ground. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. He created them. 
from the very beginning, it was God's design to just create us in His image, but He created us with a vision for distinctly different hearts that would be embedded into a male and a female. And the complement between those two on the face of the earth would display the image of God. See, anytime there's an issue of vision, we always need to go back to the vision. Many of you started your careers with a vision too. And I don't know what the two is, but you know it. And it's so easy to get sidetracked on the vision that we have. Some of you started companies or businesses with a vision too. And along the way, Uh, organizational theorists call it vision drift, that we started our family with a vision, but along the way, so many other good things came along that we started to drift away from what the original vision was. You see, if you don't constantly redirect yourself to God's vision, you'll drift away from it. And in the issue of masculinity and being a man, culturally, we have drifted away from the God-designed heart for a man. We have drifted to where now the heart is defined by a few things culturally. And I'm going to spend some time describing these four things to you. There are a bigger list, but these four, I think, really are the ones that kind of stand out the most that we have drifted to start to define masculinity by, and the first one is power. What does it mean to be a man? It means to have power. And historically, this has been probably the broadest definition of masculinity. Men were the ones who contained and held the power. But I think, and I'm thankful, that we're living in an era where this is being stripped away. I mean, there's a movement right now that is displaying the abuse of power for the whole world to see, all right? Because masculinity was never intended to be defined by power. Some of us grew up in churches where that was how it was defined. Men were the ones that had the power in the family, that had the power in the church. And they anchored this in Scripture a lot of times in Ephesians 5.22, verses 23, where it says, Wives, submit yourself to your own husbands as you do to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church. Now, that is the Bible, and we say this around here. Whatever the Bible says, we believe the Bible. Whatever the Bible says is good, we believe it's good. Okay? And a lot of times that verse has been leveraged in homes to say, Listen, I'm in charge. I got the power. Listen to me. I'm the husband. Neglecting to back up one verse and read just a little bit more where that whole passage begins with this. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. That whole passage begins with the basis of understanding that a husband and wife would be submitted to each other. It's called mutual submission. 
just want to take a moment and just describe what that's supposed to look like. Mutual submission looks like this. Wives, submit to your husband's leadership. But husbands, submit to your wives and your family's needs. That's why he would go on to say, husbands, love your wife like Christ loved the church where he gave up his That's what submission is supposed to be look like. It's, it's, it's not a, a thing of power. It's not an issue of power. And we have defined masculinity as power. And the, the second thing I think is the natural outworking of defining masculinity as power is that the masculinity is defined by possession. It's defined by possession. Now, this can be in a, a simple form, but I think there's a, a, a deeper thing that's at work here. In, in its simple form, it, it is that our worth is determined by our possessions. Our worth is determined by our possessions, which is why it is very common for me to go over to a guy's house, and the whole time that we're there, all they talk about is the stuff they have. Hey, let me show you my new motorcycle. Come on. Hey, can I show you my new pool table? Hey, hey, come look at this. Come look at this. Come look at this. Come look at this. Let me show you this. Let me show you this. Let me show you this. And all the time, they're, they're really not trying to impress me. Really what's happening is that they're displaying that their self-worth is anchored in what they possess. But I think it goes much deeper than that. That the... The problem isn't as surface level as just simply defining our net worth and our self-worth by our possessions. I think it really goes that our value comes from that which we can possess. Which is why there are a lot of guys, even some guys in this room, that treat their wives or their girlfriends like they are possessions. And they're guys, you know those guys that float from girl to girl to girl to girl to girl. And their value is based on the fact that they can take possession over another girl, another girl, another girl. And it is a total misapplication of what it means to be a man. Really, in shifting gears, I think the third one is as prevalent, and that's that masculinity has been defined by play. That there are a lot of men who are not really men, they're just boys that are much older than little boys. I love what Bill Ingvall said. Bill Ingvall said, I don't want to be a man. I just want to be a guy. Because if you're a man, you've got to deal with all the problems. But if you're a guy, you can just go, hey, oh, I'm sorry. I'm just a guy. Just say, oh yeah, I didn't do the dishes, but I'm just a guy. Yeah, yeah, I didn't I didn't help clean up around the house. That's that's because I'm just a guy. And there are a lot of men who don't want to be men because they don't want the responsibility of being a man. This is actually a very prevalent cultural perspective. Pay attention to this. The next time you lock in on a sitcom on TV. Pay attention to the dad. More often than not, the character 
in the dynamic of a family that is made fun of and belittled is the dad. Presented as being playful and irresponsible, not able to be counted on, the person who always gets things wrong, the person who always gets things right and is correct is typically the female in authority. We have a lot of grown men who don't want the responsibility of being men. And they're nothing more than boys that are just a lot older than little boys. The last problem is something that has been around since sin began itself. It's passivity. I really think culturally in our effort to raise young girls that are strong and, and that can take care of themselves, we've swung the pendulum on guys to not be strong and not be able to take care of themselves. And we've started raising a, really a generation of young, very passive men. Now, believe me, I want my daughter to be brilliant and strong I want her to be able to lead and to follow leadership because I don't care who you are, you're always going to have to follow a leader. But I don't want my sons to be passive. See, passivity goes all the way back to Adam. In Genesis chapter 3, it describes the fall of man. And in that moment, it talks about the woman, Eve. And, and, and if you've ever paid attention to that you, you know that Eve takes the fruit, she's tempted by the serpent, and then she gives it to her husband, her husband eats, and then sin is born, right? You understand that dynamic. But in Genesis 3, verse 6, there's a caveat included in the story that often we miss. And that's that Adam, in the midst of that conversation, and all of that was with Eve. And he passively sat back while his wife was tempted and sinned and did nothing. And there are a lot of men who are passively sitting back and watching their kids and their wives take steps away from the will of God and doing nothing. And that's not at all the heart that God wants to be in the heart of a man. So I'm going to give you Three things that I think that for every man in here, we need to work at reclaiming as the heart that God has designed for a man. The first one is that God designed men to be protectors. Protector. To take on the identity of being protector. Now, I, I love looking at the differences between men and women, reading studies that have to do with that. There's, there's so much worth in determining that and learning from that. For example, you know, we, we know that women, on average, use three times the number of words that a man does in a day. Right? Y'all ladies already know that, okay? Us guys, we don't even know. It doesn't even compute which is why we ask you how you're feeling and you just like, it's 30 minutes later and we're overwhelmed. Like you have said in 30 minutes, the total number of words we will say all day. All right? 
But there's a study that was done. They, they, they actually used an elevator. called the elevator study. And, and, and what they did is they, they took two random guys who didn't understand the situation. They put them on an elevator. They had no idea what was going on. And they rode the elevator going up. The same time that they got on, a woman got on. And she positioned herself in front of them. The elevator was programmed to stop where they had staged an active shooter scenario. And the active shooter was right outside the opening to the elevator. Invariably, the men instinctively stepped in front of the women. I don't know if you saw this, but this past weekend, the, the school shooting in, in Florida, the, the football coach who stepped in front to take the bullets to protect his students, there, there's something buried and instinctive in the heart of a man to be protector. And it's really a reflection of the nature of the God that we serve. We see that in Psalm 3, verse 3. But you, O Lord, are a shield around me. You are my glory, the one who holds my head high. God is our protector. And as he reflected his nature in the humanity that he created, he buried within the heart of a man the desire to protect. So the question has to come up. What are we protecting? What are we protecting? Because there are a lot of guys who are willing to get in barroom brawls over the guy who said something that was ugly about their girlfriend. But if we're honest, they're not really protecting that girl because of how they treat her in other scenarios. What does it mean to protect? Sure, it means that in the middle of the night when you hear the window break on the other side of the house that you're the one that gets out of bed and runs towards the problem. Sure, it means that. But it means so much more. It means this, that at the heart, at its heart, the desire to protect is the calling to preserve God's will. It's the calling to preserve God's will. Which is why we husbands will, will go to bat and go to war when we know that something's wrong. and that, that we're stepping outside of what God wants for us. We'll protect that. And when there are times that you feel inclined to do something that God doesn't want you to, or even when you're allowing yourself to feel something, that God doesn't want you to. You're not making wise choices internally. Your husband will work to protect you from that. The second thing that I think that we need to reclaim if we're going to have the right heart as men is that men were designed to be providers. Designed to be providers. is connected to what the rabbis call the curses, the pronouncement over men and women as a result of sin at the end of Genesis chapter 3. You see, up until that point, God alone had been provider. God had taken care of both of them. He had provided all that they need. They didn't need anything else. Everything was given to them. But all of that changed when sin entered the world. 
And so he says to Adam, by the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. There's so much in that verse, some of it that I'll unpack later in this message. But he says, listen, I've provided for you, but now you're going to have to work to provide. And really inside the heart of a man, there's a desire to provide for his family. And it's a good desire. Now, I know that we live in a, a culture and in a world where many of our families are dual income. So let me, let me just give you a quote that I love. This, this is John Piper. John Piper said, if we're going to apply this, really, this God-given desire, if, if there's no food on the table and none in the pantry, it's the man's job to get up and go get some. for man to be provider. Now, the, the tension in that is that we, we live in a culture where most of our families are dual-income families. And I, I want to just say this. Like, my family is a dual-income family. Vortex Church would not exist if my wife had not been able to work and support us for almost three years when I virtually got paid nothing so that we could do this. We would not even be in existence without her help, okay? And there are many families that that are in that same scenario. Right now, I can tell you that we believe that my wife is called to do the job that she is doing that God has called her to do it. It is We have prayed about it. We have fasted about it. We believe that there's a purpose, and we believe that God is using her in what she does. All right? So I'm, I'm not pushing back against the notion of dual income at all. I don't want you to feel that. I don't want you to feel any kind of shame even associated with that. But I have sat down with guys many different times whose wives made exponentially more money than they did and watched them weep under the pressure that they felt to provide for their family as they felt like failures in something that God had hidden in their heart. So can I just give you rules to follow if you're a dual-income family? First one, husbands. If you're in a dual-income situation, value your wife's contribution. Value your wife's contribution to your family. Realize that there is not a woman who is working who is not sacrificing to work. She's giving up often something that she wants to do to do what she feels like she is supposed to do. Value the sacrifice that she's making for your family. And wives, wives, honor your husband's contribution to your family. I don't care if you make 10 times more money than your husband makes. Treat him like he is the provider. Because if it's done right, it's not your money and his money, it's our money. Treat him and honor him that way. And can I just kind of give you just kind of a step back from all of that? And this is so important because it doesn't matter what side you're on, 
all right? As a matter of fact, um, MSNBC did a study on dual-income families, came to find out that, that for it to actually be beneficial for your family, the second income needed to be above $37,000, $38,000 a year. Because of what it does to your tax bracket, the amount of money that's kind of sunk into you working that second job, what's needed to facilitate that, everything from driving and auto uh, kind of expenses. It, it's, it's one of those things. So, so let me just give you some advice. Continue, continue to evaluate your goals and what you're working towards as a family and what you're sacrificing for. Because you may come to a point what you're sacrificing for is not equal to what you're getting. Y'all hear me? You may come to a point where what you're sacrificing is not equal to what you're getting. And you need to constantly evaluate that. The third thing that we need to reclaim, if we're going to get this right in the heart of a man, is that a man is designed to be a pace setter. A man is designed to be a pace setter. Now, notice I didn't use the word leadership. I do believe that, that that's the right word, that that's a good word. But in our culture, when we leverage the word leader, it often references power. It often references the, the use of power towards, towards my, my vision and, and my good. And there are a lot of families that are around that if we're honest, the, the family is dad-centered. And if dad isn't happy, nobody's happy. And, and the, that everybody is serving dad. That's just not at all the way it was designed. As a matter of fact, authentic biblical leadership is never self-serving. It's never self-serving. It's other-serving. Which is why the Bible says in Ephesians 5.28, in the same way, husbands, you ought to give up your wife, love your wives as they love their own bodies. For a man who loves his wife actually shows love for himself. L love your wife the same way that you, you love you. you you're going to take care of you. You're going to make sure that you got food. Make sure that your wife is taken care of. You know, there's this principle in the Marines. It's so beautiful. I don't know if you've ever had the chance to sit down in a mess hall with a bunch of Marines. But the tradition is, is that the lowest ranking personnel in the room eats first. All the way up to the leader, the highest ranking official eats last. It happens that way in mess halls, on bases, and it happens in the field in operations that the lowest ranking person eats first, the highest ranking person eats last. And there are times there is not enough food. But there's another rule. Nobody eats until everybody's served. And there are times when they run out of food and the highest ranking leader comes up to eat and there's no food left. And the other people go, no, that's not acceptable. Here you go. Because when you serve selflessly, when you give yourself away selflessly, people are designed to respond to you. That's what that verse is saying. When you give up your life for your wife, she's going to take care of you. 
You're designed to be the pace setter. The one out in front. The one chasing down the dream. And I think that when we lead that way, it makes this verse much easier. That hus- for wives, this means submit to your husbands as to the Lord. When we, when we lead our families in that way, we take the barriers that naturally exist to submission out of the play. See, it's really, pace setter is such a perfect word to describe the leadership because we're designed to set the pace for our families. And that's pace of life. Right? That's what our families do and, and engage in, but it's also spiritually. Like Husbands, you need to realize that you are to be the spiritual pace setter for your family. The spiritual pace setter for your family. You're supposed to be the one out in front chasing Jesus, following Jesus, giving your life to Jesus, showing them what it means like when there's hard times that come. You're the one that's waking up early and getting on your knees. When there's times that your wife gets scared, you're the one saying, no, we're going to pray. We're going to trust Jesus. You're the pace setter. You're the leader. That leadership and that power is not given to you to serve yourself. It's given to be given away. And if we're honest about it, all of us kind of stand somewhere in between the gap of like where things are broken and where they should be. So I thought it would be important to talk about what it would take to cross that bridge. You know, in ancient cultures, they... They called it the rite of passage. That there was this gap that existed between boyhood and manhood. And, and there was a, a something that a boy had to do. It, it, it may be that he goes on, on, a, on a camping trip and he has to, has to kill his first animal. In historical different context, it meant much worse. But I, I love this verse from the Apostle Paul in Philippians 4. He says, now that I've gone through my initiation, I'm ready for anything, anywhere. See, I believe that if we're going to cross over from living like a a, a bunch of grown boys into the heart that God wants for us, we've got to bridge that gap between the immaturity and the maturity that God wants for us. And so I'm going to share five truths that we need to be initiated into. Five truths that if we're going to be initiated, like the Apostle Paul says, I was initiated, we need to be initiated into these five truths. And the first one is that life is hard. Life is hard. A lot of us want life to be filled with fun joy we want Disneyland every, every week can we just go to Disney World every week right can a Carowinds trip be planned every other week can we just not spend every day on the couch watching Netflix but that's not life life is work life is hard but life is also filled with pain 
And there are things that are going to come at you no matter whether you want them or not that are filled with pain. Life is going to give you pain because sin entered the world and broke the world. And because of that pain exists and we're going to encounter pain whether we want to or not. And the truth about pain is if we don't learn how to transform our pain, we will transmit it in some way. If we don't get initiated into that truth that life is hard and accept that life is hard and know that pain is going to come. We won't learn how to transform the pain that comes along. Trusting God with it, giving it up, giving up our lives, trusting Him to take that pain and transform it into something else. I think that's what Jesus was speaking to in Luke 17 when He said, whoever seeks to preserve his life, or we could translate that into hold on, hold on to the pain, hold on to the brokenness. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it. Whatever loses his life will keep it. See, our woundedness is so very important. It's intentional. It's God-designed. God, at times, has planned to use the pain. See, realistically, if we want life to work the way it should, nothing should be wasted. Nothing including the pain. See, if we look at our wounds, our our wounds are often the only things humbling enough to break our attachment to our false self and strong enough to make us yearn for our true self. The pains of life wake us up to reality. Life is hard. The second truth that we need to be initiated into is that you are not that important. You are not that important. By God's grace, we are being used in a story that He is writing, but if we're honest, it's not our story. We're simply a pen in the hands of the Master that He's writing. And can I just say this? I've heard this several times this past week in conversations. People saying, I just feel like I'm not enough. I just feel like I'm not enough to the point that even a day or two ago I told my wife, I feel like I'm not enough. Can I just confirm a suspicion? You are not enough. You are not enough. If you're saying that in the context of a relationship, I just don't feel like I'm enough for them. That's the truth. How could you be enough for somebody who has a God-shaped hole inside of them, who needs Jesus? Only Jesus can fill that hole. You can't be enough. You are not that important. And the truth about the story of God is it will go on without us. But we get to be a part of it. I love this quote, that our value is something that we participate in, but not something that we can claim on our own. We 
get to participate in his story. But we don't own this story at all. You are not that important. Number three, life is not about you. Your life is not about you. See, because if we get those two things messed up and we feel like we're very important and life is all about me, it's all about me, it's all about how people treat me, how you serve me, how you take care of me, that's what life is defined by. What essentially has happened is you've become God. And you are not and cannot be God or Savior. You are not and cannot be God or Savior. And if we really get a hold of that, that is one of the most freeing things that we will ever realize. Because it means that I don't have to have it all figured out. I don't have to control this situation. I don't have to fix this situation because Jesus is in control. It's His story. I'm just participating in it. See, this is the truth that leverages for us the most meaningful connections that we'll ever have in our entire life. When we realize that life is not about us because it's in entirely impossible to have a meaningful connection with somebody who is all about themselves. But when we realize that life is not about us, it opens us up to real, authentic connection. Number four, you are not in control. You are not in control. It is impossible to be centered on the gospel And Jesus, if you think you are in control, it is impossible to be centered on the gospel in Jesus if you think that you are in control. And there are so many of us that have this broken, false sense of control. And we need to be initiated into the truth that we are not in control. It's a very mature perspective that understands that as truth. As a matter of fact, I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but the struggles throughout our youth are more about gaining self-control, while the struggles for maturity are more about giving up control. Because you are not in control. And lastly, number five, you are going to die. And if we could be initiated into that truth, I believe that it would change the way we approach every day. If we lived with our own mortality in front of us, realizing that the story that we write today is someday going to be echoed in the future as we are remembered I think it would change the way that we treat each day. Because you are going to die. I can remember when I was a kid, my dad talking about my grandma. My dad said, Kevin, she's going to outlive us all. 
She's so strong and healthy and strong-willed. She's going to outlive all of us. But her body failed her. This past Wednesday morning, she got to meet Jesus face to face. And outside of God coming back, the mortality rate in the United States is 100%. Every one of us, one day, is going to face death. But death does not have to be a period in your life, in the story that's being told. Death is but a comma. As the story continues past that, Jesus said in John chapter 11, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. As he's speaking to the woman at the well, he asks her the question, do you believe this? That though you would die, you would truly live. And I, I, I think that we often do apply that to the end of life, but it means more than that because we're supposed to die today. Galatians 3 is reflects the, the thoughts of the Apostle Paul when he says, I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ now lives in me. Death isn't something that we have to wait to experience. We can actually die today and experience the eternal life that God wants to live in us so that when we die at the end of this earthly story, it is but a comma in our story as the story continues into eternity. you believe this? That question that he asked. Let me ask you that today. Do you believe this? That though a man may die, he can still live. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of Vortex Church in Albemarle, North Carolina. For more information on our church, we encourage you to visit us online at vortexchurch.com.